Hey gang, welcome to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and today I've got another interesting case for you. This comes from Fort St. Nowhere, of course, and it involves a 55-year-old fellow who comes to emergency after being referred by home care with a cold, pale, actually violaceous foot. So he's been seen for the first time by home care and generally likes to avoid the healthcare system altogether. In fact, in his community up until recently, dressing supplies were freely available without the need to see a nurse. And so it wasn't until this policy was recently changed a few days ago that several people like this in the community came out of the woodwork. Unfortunately, the nurse has very little else to pass on about this particular patient. What he tells me is that he's had one week of pain in the foot, getting more and more unbearable, and he's been treating it with ointments and dressings. He attributes his foot problems to hip surgery, which he had 10 years ago, and ongoing leg problems, mainly up in the hip area. Past medical history otherwise is negative. He's on no regular medications, has no allergies. He's screaming in pain, and he was given tier one meds shortly after his arrival. Check out episode four for my summary of what that means. He had no relief from tier one, so I gave him my standard hydromorphone, two milligrams orally, no real relief from that either. And so we gave him an additional two milligrams of hydromorphone. And now his pain has settled to about a six out of 10, but he's now cooperating with me. His foot is definitely cool to the touch and it is pale, but the base of the toes and the toes themselves look like they're burned, they're violaceous. It looks as if they had blisters that have been de-roofed and there's a transudative appearance on the remaining dermis. And they are violaceous, but not swollen. He denies any trauma, any burns, any blisters. Pocus color flow demonstrates arterial and venous flow in the forefoot, but he won't let me examine the toes or put them in a water bath to see if there's any circulation in the toes themselves. So we have here a case of disproportionate pain, and that's why I've chosen this particular case from last week, because of the opportunity to finish out that discussion of disproportionate and refractory pain in the emergency department. The objectives in this episode, number one, how to approach pain that is disproportionate to exam findings. Number two, approach to refractory pain. Number three, ultrasound assessment for vascular flow. Okay, let's get into it. So objective one, how to approach pain that is disproportionate to exam findings. Pain that is disproportionate is a major red flag. And when you see a patient with disproportionate pain, be afraid, be very afraid. I'm not saying you can't send them home eventually, but make sure you have a good long sniff around for occult scary conditions. And depending on where that pain is located in the body, think about intracranial hemorrhage, aortic dissection or aneurysm, a pneumothorax, ischemic bowel, cotoquina syndrome, compartment syndrome, necrotizing fasciitis. To be honest, if I could distill an entire year of emergency medicine residency in Kingston down to the single most valuable piece of advice, it is this from Dr. Andy Reid. Always in the back of your mind, ask yourself, what occult condition could I be missing that will kill this patient? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what this previous list largely encompasses. It's not a very long list, and there are a few other conditions on it, like meningitis and temporal arteritis that don't cause disproportionate pain, but disproportionate pain should be a symptom in the emergency department that makes all of your sphincters tighten. Okay, objective two, approach to refractory pain. Refractory pain is something we touched on significantly in episode four also. I typically approach pain as a combination of three subtypes. Number one, tissue or organic type pain, which generally responds at least partly to anti-inflammatories or opiates. Number two, neuropraxic pain, which is often quite refractory to these common painkillers. And number three, an emotional and anxiety type contribution, which requires reframing, counseling, perhaps redefining more realistic expectations in health and life and lots of follow-up. 
So my approach to refractory pain is pretty simple. Number one, I look for scary causes of disproportionate pain to exam findings because dealing with life and limb threatening conditions is my number one responsibility in emergency medicine. Number two, I consider the role or contributions of the non-tissue type pain and consider whether changing focus to target neuropraxic type pain or anxiety components is in the best interest in this particular patient presentation. Number three, for residual organic pain, I consider why it is that the patient is not responding to normal or even generous doses of standard anti-inflammatories, opiates, or other painkillers. In this particular case, I get very interested in a patient's history of substance use, including alcohol and recreational drugs. But the number one culprit in 2021 in rural Canada, in my experience, is chronic marijuana use. And by marijuana, I'm talking about any marijuana product, including CBD oil, which certainly seems to be the cure-all snake oil du jour in Fort St. Nowhere at the moment. When I inquire, I will ask the patient verbatim, do you use marijuana or CBD oil? If the answer is yes, I will go on to find out how much, and that's a challenging and perhaps even silly thing to attempt to quantify given the lack of regulation and dosing in the marijuana industry. Nevertheless, if someone smokes marijuana, I will ask them, how long does one gram last you? Now, I am not a marijuana user myself, so everything I know about it really comes from what patients have told me, but essentially one gram of marijuana would be one very large joint or two smaller ones. What I've observed in both my emergency medicine and anesthesiology practices is that somewhere around one half gram per day of chronic usage, there is a significant, if not tremendous, partial antagonism of opiate receptors. This means that I can end up giving triple or quadruple doses of opiates to a patient with little or almost no effect whatsoever. And that's really bad news for someone who has just had their gallbladder out and now is in terrible post-operative pain where none of their opiates are working. And how long does this marijuana antagonism effect last? Well, my best estimate right now is over three weeks. Originally, I asked patients pre-op to stop their marijuana two weeks in advance. But that wasn't enough, so now I'm recommending stopping at least four weeks pre-op. And let me tell you that every chronic marijuana user in refractory pain postoperatively always tells me the same two things. Number one, but I take marijuana for pain control. To which I reply, sorry, surgical pain is a very different type of pain altogether. And in fact, my best estimate is that the type of pain that marijuana does control is primarily emotional and anxiety type pain contributions as well as perhaps some low-level organic type pain contributions also, but certainly not enough for post-operative pain. And the second thing they always tell me is that if I had only known, I could have easily stopped my marijuana in advance of surgery. So now, when I see a patient who consumes more than one half gram per day, regardless of what context I'm seeing them, even if it's just treating a UTI, I will still take a moment to educate them and let them know what I just told you. In fact, this marijuana spiel is one of my spiels that I alluded to back in episode four. I expect most of the time people just internally roll their eyes and ignore me altogether, but it makes me feel better when I'm up at 11 p.m. managing a patient with refractory post-op pain that is not responding to doses of opiates that I might give to our rhinoceros. Anyway, if you could consider counseling your patients about this poorly known complication of chronic marijuana usage, I would definitely appreciate it, and I'm sure at some point they will as well. Right. So what do we do for someone in emergency with refractory pain that doesn't seem to have an occult dangerous cause of that pain and who can't be optimized in terms of neuropraxic or emotional type pain contributions? My first suggestion would be to refer to the on-call anesthesiologist. Since that's kind of our gig, 
We generally have better time and resources for this type of problem, plus we have a lot of extra tricks up our sleeves. However, if you can't do that because you're a rural doc in a place without anesthesia support, then here is what I would suggest. First, consider if admission is appropriate because a lot of these interventions are only transient and not compatible with the patient going home. If you can't really admit someone, say for refractory dental pain, then you're better off focusing your time on the fact that there is no perfect solution and that the patient is going to need to follow up with their dentist or whomever is the appropriate choice. Second, consider local anesthetic. Bupivacaine can provide many hours of relief. And so for example, injecting the gum around the tooth or the mandibular ramus can provide significant relief if only for a few hours. Third, ketamine at analgesic doses is an option, either intermittently or as an infusion, but likely that's going to require increased nursing resources, such as one-to-one, -one, depending on the local policy. Four, lidocaine IV infusion is another option, but with the same caveats as ketamine. Number five, starting someone on gabapentin is a reasonable option in the ED, albeit a subacute solution to an acute patient concern. Otherwise, in a rural ED, your best bet is to focus on the foundational aspects of pain control as previously discussed, emphasizing that the sum of all these little parts will help, though they may not eliminate the pain completely, i.e. a reframing of patient expectations. From here, I would go on to suggest as relevant positioning, splints and resting the body part, heat or cold depending on the cause and the reaction to those stimuli, tier one medication optimization, counseling, consideration of gabapentin or a steroid injection, for example, with a family physician, and so on. At the end of the day, there is often no perfect solution for refractory pain. Sometimes it just boils down to the fact that walking five kilometers with your four-year-old grandson on your osteoarthritic hip that chronically hurts is just a plain bad idea that comes at a price. And really, it is time that is going to settle things more than what we're doing here today. As I keep saying, pain management is tricky. And even pain specialists cannot control all pain all the time, let alone an emergency physician in a rural department with limited time. At the end of the day, just try and do the best you can with the limited resources you have. And bear in mind that no matter what you do, the patient's contributions and behaviors and actions are going to play a much greater role in that pain control and satisfaction overall. We're getting a little husky there. All right, changing gears. Objective three, ultrasound assessment for vascular flow. Often docs who are just starting out with ultrasound worry about which probe to use when scanning, especially when you're branching out beyond the basic binary scans that you've been taught. For example, you've learned a fast scan and an aorta scan. You know that ultrasound can be used to detect peripheral arteries, but you've never been shown. So where do you start? So first of all, probes have different footprints. So choose a probe that best matches the terrain of the body part you want. For example, a soft belly will make great contact with that giant curvilinear probe but a bony ankle, not so much. The flat, small linear probe works better in that sort of limited real estate environment. The small square phased array or cardiac probe is optimized for getting views between the ribs. Second, consider the frequency of the probe. You can try and make sense of the numbers stamped on each probe, if there are any stamped there, but it might just be easy to remember this. High frequencies of sound don't travel very far, but they provide better quality information. Just imagine me in my university days driving my Honda Civic listening to its stock radio with the treble cranked. You can't hear what I'm listening to very far away, but when you hear it, you know that I've got the Beach Boys cranked up. Now think about the hip kids on the other side of campus with the lowered Civic and the custom subwoofer. You can hear their music from across campus, 
but no one, including them with their earmuffs on, have any idea what song they're listening to because the sound quality is so awful. And so this concept applies to ultrasound probes. Higher frequency probes like the linear probe have great resolution but very poor depth penetration. Most top out at six centimeters of depth. That's great if you wanna see high detail in a relatively superficial structure such as arterial flow in a foot. And in fact, that's what I would choose. But that's terrible if you want to see the kidney 12 centimeters below the skin in a fluffy patient. And so in that case, you choose the lower frequency abdominal probe. However, if you're looking for a superficial structure in the abdomen, say the inguinal artery in a very skinny patient, then that six centimeter linear probe depth may do the trick and give you much better resolution. So probe choice all depends on what body part you're trying to see and how deep it is relative to the skin. Lastly, most manufacturers offer some control over the frequency any given probe is using. Manufacturers like GE actually provide a knob where you can set the megahertz setting from 10 to 13 or 16 or whatever you want in between. Other manufacturers like Sonosite try to dumb it down for all the numbskull doctors like me and so their frequency selection equates to choosing a mode between say general which is default level frequency, penetration, lower frequency, and resolution setting which is higher frequency. Understanding the physics behind frequency as well as that particular knobology for your machine will help you get to the next level of ultrasound mastery and better optimize your scanning depending on how deep your target of interest is. Okay, so color mode Doppler. B mode is just the black and white default mode of ultrasound that everyone is familiar with, but color flow Doppler or color or C or perhaps other terms depending on the device manufacturer, provides the added advantage of the machine tracking if tissue, say red blood cells in a vessel, are moving towards or away from the probe. And so when you click that color mode button, you'll get a box and anything inside that sample box area that is moving towards or away from the probe will light up according to its direction and velocity. Now most manufacturers by default will color code the movement on a red to blue scale meaning that red is something moving towards the probe and blue is something moving away from the probe. However, that scale and the direction can be reset as a customizable feature in many machines. And so to really be sure what you're looking at, there is generally a little graph in the corner of the screen when color mode is active that demonstrates that the redder the color gets, the faster it is moving towards the probe. And similarly, the bluer it gets, the faster it is moving away from the probe. The best way to figure it out is to just grab your machine, put it on your arm, turn on color mode, and then look at it, study it, play with it. Now, just to reiterate, movement of tissue has to be at least partly in the axis of sound waves. If you are viewing a vessel with a direction of flow that is absolutely perpendicular to the sound wave direction, zero velocity will be detected, and therefore it will not light up in either red or blue or whatever color. So for example, when we're looking for flow in the foot, we have to ensure that we angle the probe such that sound waves are more parallel with the surface of the foot and traveling in the direction of the vessel itself. As soon as you angle the probe downwards into a more flat-like position, the pulsation becomes visible. If you angle it too far though, you will break contact with the skin. Of course, you won't see anything. So there's a little bit of fiddling involved. Okay, so try this out on your next shift. Grab the linear probe preferentially, but any probe will do. 
find the color flow button and turn it on, put the probe on your medical student's forearm straight up and down so that you are perpendicular to the direction of blood flow in the vessels, and you're going to see very little other than black and white anatomy. Be sure to use your little scroll ball or trackpad to drag your sample box on the screen such that it is over top of where you expect the radial artery to be, and then slowly lower the probe down such that the beam is pointing up towards the elbow, stopping every 10 degrees or so on the way. And at some point, you're going to detect arterial pulsations and perhaps even venous flow of a different color. Keep going until you are as flat as possible to the arm without losing contact with the skin. And then repeat the process, this time going from perpendicular but laying the probe down going away from the elbow towards the wrist. And you'll see the same process repeat itself, except that the pulsations will have turned from red, i.e. towards the ultrasound probe, to blue, away from the probe, and the veins will have switched color as well. Congratulations, you are now qualified to use POCUS to assess for blood flow in situations where you are unable to locate a reassuring pulse. Just remember, the blood flow must be moving towards or away from the probe, at least partly. Okay, so how did the case end? Honestly, in a pretty spectacular train wreck. I did absolutely everything I could for this guy. I ordered regular hydromorphone top-ups because he did respond to them and he denied a history of other substance use that could lead to tolerance and antagonism. Thus, I felt like I was dealing with a bona fide organic pain and a potentially foot-threatening etiology. I spent hours on the phone arranging a CT angiogram and was able to cajole a vascular surgeon into accepting this patient for urgent assessment the next morning in his clinic. The patient didn't have transportation and so I arranged a transfer for him the next morning. And I wrote holding orders such that we could keep the patient in our emergency department overnight comfortable so he could go out first thing in the morning and get both his scan and then his appointment taken care of in the same facility and then return back home. Sounds pretty good, right? So at that point, the patient decided that he was tired of us and just wandered out of the hospital and left AMA without saying anything to anyone. Honestly, I'm not sure what happened to him after his hydromorphone wore off, but I did not see him again. And such is the nature of medicine. Sometimes you try and may even succeed in moving heaven and earth for a patient. And then they simply say thanks, but no thanks and wander off. But hey, at least we got an interesting case to wrap up this discussion of disproportionate and refractory pain. So all's well that ends well, I guess. Okay, gang, so that's it for this episode. Key points. Number one, be afraid of pain that is disproportionate to exam findings. It sometimes may be your only opportunity to catch an otherwise occult, life-threatening condition. Number two, refractory pain is tricky. Consider occult scary things, as just mentioned. Consider non-organic pain causes, such as neuropraxia or emotional stress contributions, and address any low-hanging fruit that you find. Consider if there is resistance or tolerance to your analgesics. I harped on poorly recognized effects of chronic marijuana use in this episode, but there are plenty of other culprits. Buprenorphine and methadone are partial antagonists, and sometimes people are physiologically predisposed to not respond to certain medications in the first place. So try a different medication or even a different class. And finally, involve your patient in the decision-making. Consider how significant the pain is right here and now and how realistic it is to try to control it as an outpatient. If faced with not being able to go home versus go home in pain but with additional safe strategies to trial and follow up with a family physician planned, in most cases, the patient's preferred option is going to be clear for that specific circumstance. 
Oh, and I could really use your help to educate the masses about the need to stop chronic marijuana usage at least four weeks in advance of upcoming elective surgery in order to prevent post-operative pain crises. Third, color mode is available on most ultrasound machines. You just have to find the button to turn it on and make sure that the sample box is over the area where you are searching for flow. Remember that color mode works on the Doppler principle and thus the blood flow must be moving towards or away from the probe in order to be detected. Thus the more acute an angle, the more parallel you can get your sound beam to the direction of flow, the stronger that signal is going to be. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks for your attention, send me your feedback, and we'll catch you next time.